As the children make their way, if the rest of you would, turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the book of Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, we will begin today verses 1 through 10 here in the third chapter of Acts. Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be some in the pews around you. Uh, and also, we will have the text on the screen as well. And if you don't own a Bible uh, and, and would like one, we would encourage you, please, take one of the Bibles that are in the pews. They should be blue paperback Bibles. Um, if you find a nicer one than that, make sure it doesn't have a name in it, but feel free to take that home with you. Uh, you can have that one. That's fine. Um, we want you to be sure and have a copy of God's Word so that you can, as we say, uh, check everything that we say by God's Word. Read it. Know it for yourself. Acts chapter 3, if you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word today. Acts 3, verse 1 and following. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to enter the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. He fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk, and entering the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement. At what had happened to them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, come to this time now where we seek to focus our minds, focus our attention to your word. And I ask, Lord, as I stand up here today to preach your word, that you would guide my lips, that you would guide my words, that you would guide my heart and my intentions. And Lord, not just me, but the congregation also, that those who are here today listening, that their ears would be opened, their hearts would be guided into all truth and all wisdom by your word. And Lord, I pray today that we would see the gospel of Jesus Christ revealed as we read this most amazing event of the healing of this beggar. Lord, we ask today for your help, for your guidance, and for your grace. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. A uh, common, I think probably universal aspect of giving gifts to children that many of us, if you're parents in here or if you have seen children open Christmas gifts or birthday gifts, something that you'll know is that the kind of gifts that children really do not enjoy getting are clothes. This is no shock to anyone. This is no surprise to anyone. As I watch my children open up their birthday gifts or their Christmas gifts, what are they looking for? They're looking for toys, they're looking for candy, they're looking for balls and bats and things like that. You know what they're not looking for? Socks, 
clothes, shirts, pants. And when they open up socks, shirts, pants, what do they do? They toss it. That's exactly right. They don't sit there and go, oh, gap. Wow, that's nice. No, they say close, next, right? That's the way it is as children receive gifts. But what is the, the fact of the matter? And as parents, if you are, are in here today and you take your kids to their grandparents to receive their gifts, I'm pretty excited when I see my kids getting clothes. Because as we know, kids are always outgrowing their clothes. They always need new clothes. It is something that they need, it seems like, on an hourly basis. New shoes, new clothes, it never ends. And so although these clothes that kids open up and toss to the side, it's not at all what they are looking to receive, not what they're hoping to receive, not what they want to receive, but certainly we know that it's what they need. And even as adults, if we're honest, I'll be honest in here, as an adult, when I am opening up gifts on my birthday, on Christmas, whatever the case may be, and I pull out a shirt, I have to kind of put on a show of excitement. The shirt I'm wearing right now was a gift. And I pulled the shirt out of the package and I thought, oh, okay. It's not the, not the pocket knife I was hoping for. It's not that new drill. It's a, it's a shirt, okay. But then when it comes time for me to get dressed for winter, when it comes time for me to get ready for work and I pull out this shirt and I put it on, I think, man, this is a really nice shirt. I'm glad I have this shirt. Even this morning, David Greenwood gave me a very nice compliment on my shirt. And it is Gap, in fact. <laughs> it's what I needed, and I certainly came around to realize that it was a very good and great gift. It's a gift that I needed, which is better than the gift that I want. Because so often, with toys that kids get, what happens? A week, two weeks, if you're lucky, and that toy's already old news. It's already thrown into a corner somewhere, or maybe it's even already broken. To be honest with you, we all understand and see that getting the things that we need is always, always better than getting the things that we want. We see in our text here today a story of a man who, though he had something in mind that he wanted, that he was asking for, experienced a great amount of joy, not in getting what he was asking for, not in getting what he wanted from people, but in getting what he needed. And we're going to look at this through, through five points, and I know that there's... That's a lot of points, uh, but hopefully we can get through them fairly quickly uh, and, uh, and see the value and see and understand the gospel through this story. The first thing that we see here in our text, as we look at the first few verses, is we see this man's desperate condition. We see this man, a man not named, but one who is described and described in a really unfortunate terms. Verses 2 and 3 tell us of his predicament. It says that this was a man lame from birth, a man who had never taken a step in his life. Ever since his mother's womb, he had been unable to walk. He had been crippled. It says that he was lame from birth and was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple. This man was in such bad shape that he was utterly helpless for himself to to even make his way around. In fact, he was completely reliant on friends or family or whoever he could get in order to take him to this place where he might receive some help, where he might receive some mercy, some money, where he might have his needs met. This man is described in a, in a way that leaves him pictured as utterly helpless. A man who is desperate for help, who can do very little for himself. So he is brought and he has sat 
each and every day, says they laid him daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering. This is a man left to beg and ask for the mercy of those going in and out of the temple to worship to give him just something, just something that he can live off, something so that he can feed himself and survive. The shape of this man that this man was in would make it impossible for anyone to believe that what comes later on in this text, that this healing was somehow a hoax or somehow a parlor trick. This man was lame from his birth and had nothing else to do but to lay here by the temple hoping to receive some bit of help from those passing by. And it's very likely that this man was a fixture. The text says that they brought him in daily. We can assume since he was lame from birth that this had been something he'd been doing for years and years and years. This man was very likely a fixture here at the temple. R.C. Sproul told a, a story of his time in Amsterdam as he, uh, as he studied at a college there in Amsterdam. And at his time there, he crossed over this bridge uh, near uh, the place where he went to school every, every day. It was a bridge that was very well trafficked. There was, a, there was a lot of people, and there were a lot of people going to religious institutions there. And so this man posted himself up. He was uh, in a very similar situation to this man. He was crippled. And he was there asking for alms. And R.C. Sproul noted that the whole time he was there in Amsterdam, he saw this man every single day sitting here asking for alms, asking for money. And he, he noted that after years, he went back to this place again to visit the university, to visit Amsterdam. And lo and behold, there was the same man sitting, waiting, asking for alms. And indeed, he even saw pictures of this old historic bridge from from years past, and even in those pictures from years past, there in the photograph, in these pictures, was this man seated by the bridge asking for alms. It's likely that the same was true of our man here in our story. As he was a beggar, lame from birth, he was likely a fixture here at this temple. So that everyone who entered and exited the temple regularly was familiar with this man knew who he was, knew that he was lame, crippled, and that he sat there and had to be carried there every single day. One commentator notes that this man wasn't just broke, he was broken. This was a man who was without any hope, without any help, was left to rely on those passing by. He was certainly a man in desperate condition. But we see point number two as our Story moves on in verses 4 and 5. We see Peter and John becoming personally involved. We see their personal involvement in this man's life. Verse 4 says, And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. This man, as John and Peter were passing by, asking for, for alms, did the same thing he did to every other person who passed by. He said, Can you have any money to spare. Please spare some money. And as we see this man, his gaze wasn't really fixed on Peter and John. He did ask them for alms, but he asked everyone for alms. For him, it was likely, I ask, and then I move on to the next person, and then I ask, and then I move on to the next person. Because by and large, what is it that people do when they encounter beggars? And I would argue it's no different today than it was then. So put yourself in the shoes here of 
Peter and John as they are walking into the temple and there is this beggar asking for money. Peter and John's reaction to this beggar is totally different than the way most people, and indeed probably many of us, react to beggars, react to those who are seeking alms, who are seeking help as they lie there on the sidewalk, on the edge of the street, outside of sporting venues, outside of churches, outside of various places. What really is the normal reaction is to avoid eye contact, to avoid acknowledging this person, to get through this situation as quickly as possible without any awkward interactions, without having to explain myself, without having to really even acknowledge that this person is there. Even if we give money to those who ask, oftentimes we want it to be quick, painless, put it in, move on, nothing more than that. And yet what we see from Peter and John is that they directed their gaze at this man and in return called him to do the same. They not only looked to this man, stopped, paused, gave this man their attention, but they called for his attention as well. So that now we find ourselves in this situation where they are staring at this beggar and this beggar is staring at them. And you maybe can feel how awkward this could have been. This would have been. I think for most of us, eye contact is awkward in general, let alone in a situation where we're making direct eye contact with a beggar on the street. For most of us, getting into an elevator is an awkward enough situation to make eye contact. I don't know what it is about elevator ceilings and floors, but they are so interesting. You get on an elevator and you go, like, what are people looking at? There's nothing up there. They're avoiding making eye contact with the other people on the elevator. And then there are some of those crazy people who have the audacity to talk to you while you're on the elevator. It's so uncomfortable. It's so awkward for us. And yet here, Peter and John direct this man's gaze at them as they look to him, making direct eye contact, acknowledging this man. For these apostles, this lame beggar mattered and warranted their full attention. This is the exact same thing we see Jesus doing oftentimes in the gospel. How often in the gospels did Jesus, so in the midst of crowds, stop and direct his gaze to one individual person? Think about the, the man who was crying out. This man, Bartimaeus was his name, blind Bartimaeus, who as he heard Jesus was passing by, what did he do? We sing about it. He said, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus, though surrounded by crowds, stopped and directed his focus, directed his gaze, directed his attention at this man, Bartimaeus. The same thing is true of the woman who was healed as she touched the hem of his garment. The same thing is true of Zacchaeus, who, though in the midst of this crowd, Zacchaeus said nothing. Jesus stopped and directed his gaze at Zacchaeus. Here now, the apostles, following in Jesus' footsteps, direct their gaze at this one who other people try desperately not to look at, giving him their full attention, giving him their focus. And I think this serves as a sort of important side lesson for us. As we walk throughout our daily lives, as we live in this world, how often do we stop and think about the people that are around us? The people that are around us on the street, the people that are around us at the supermarket, the people that are around us even at our own workplaces. Oftentimes, I think we, 
We think of them as, as those characters in video games, non-player characters or whatever they are called, NPCs. They're, they're essentially nothing, right? It's just like a, a computer player. There's no reason to interact with this person, acknowledge this person. These just happen to be features at the place where I am, where I'm living, where I'm working, where I'm shopping. I think it would do us well to stop and consider that all of those people around us are souls. They are souls with an eternal fate, an eternal destiny. They are image bearers of God just as we are deserving of our attention and of our focus. I think it's good for us to direct our minds, to direct our attention in this way, to begin to think about those around us, not as features in the place where we work, but as image bearers of God who desperately need the gospel, who desperately need the same hope that we have within us. We see here that that's exactly what Peter and John do, they get personally involved in this man's life, even though they didn't have to, and even though it was probably awkward, they direct their gaze at him, and he directs his gaze back at them. He fixed his attention on them. He fixed his attention, hoping to gain something, as verse 5 says, expecting to receive something from them, and certainly this man was expecting to receive alms, no doubt, expecting to receive Money, in fact, with the unique situation here, as these men did something no one ever does, and they stopped and they looked at him and spoke to him and called for his attention, he might have thought, this is my lucky day. I'm about to get a whole bunch of money. These guys are going to give me something good. And then we see what he receives. Point number three is an unexpected command. Peter gains this man's attention, sets his eyes on him, and the man is anticipating this gift of alms, some money to be given, and instead what he gets is a command. Before the command comes, though, there is an admission on the part of Peter. Before Peter gives him the command we know is coming, he's going to tell him, rise and walk. First, what does Peter say? Peter said, I have no silver and gold. This probably would have been a little bit of a letdown for this guy, wouldn't it? Well, I hate to break it to you, sir, but that's kind of what I'm asking for here. Silver and gold, right? I need some money. I can't buy food if I don't have money to buy food. But notice that this letdown doesn't last for very long because there's a but in this sentence that Peter is about to say, right? He says, but. I've talked before about the significance of this word, but, over and over again in Scripture, that so oftentimes when we read it, when we read what the Apostle Paul says, when we read what the New Testament writers say, oftentimes this word but means a dramatic change is coming. A significant shifting of realities is coming. Good news is coming. He gives them the bad news. The bad news is, I have no silver or gold. And that's unfortunate for this guy. But then Peter says, but what I do have, I give to you. In the D Church family, what Peter had was far greater than silver, was far greater than gold. What he had, we might say, was the pearl of great price. Peter didn't have any money, but that doesn't mean he had nothing to give. He gave him that which he had 
And that which this man truly needed, he gave him Jesus. And as I said, as we walk around in our lives today, as we walk around the world around us, as we see those people, it might be a beggar on the street. It might be a single mother at a grocery store. It might be you name it. And we might think we have nothing to give that person, nothing to do for that person. We have no money, no status, no special skills. But if we have Jesus Christ, we have something to give that person. We have the greatest thing to give that person. In fact, the very thing that we seeing here in church is the most important thing. In Christ alone, my hope is found. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. He is all that we need, and he is all that the world around us, around us needs as well. This doesn't mean don't give your money to those who need it. Go and read the book of James, and you'll see that, no, it's good to care for the needs of those around us. But what it does mean is that even if you have no money to give, even if you have no skills to share, you have something that they desperately, desperately need, even if they don't know it. It might seem like the clothes a child would cast aside when they open them up on Christmas Day, but believe me, brothers and sisters in Christ, if this person truly is willing to receive the gift you have to give them as this beggar was, it will change their life. Upon this, Peter gives the command to this man, rise up and walk. Do not miss where does this, have, this healing really come from here? Peter speaks. We know that to be the case. Peter and John are there. And they look at this man and they gaze. But Peter doesn't say just, I command you, get up and walk. What is it that Peter says? In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. In the name of Jesus here means in the power of Jesus. In the power of Jesus, rise up and walk. This man was not healed by the right incantation that Peter said, saying those words in the consecutive order, saying them in the right tone of voice is not what healed this man. It was not Peter or John's power, not theirs collectively or individually. It was Jesus Christ and his power by which this man was healed. And I find it interesting that Peter says specifically, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. To me, I find this to be another way of, of what Peter did in his sermon previously when he said, this Jesus whom you crucified. It was this Jesus, not to be confused with anyone else. It was Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whose power it is that can heal the lame and give sight to the blind I find this even more amazing that he says Jesus of Nazareth when we consider, when we recall what it is that Nathanael said in John chapter 1. If you recall that story as, as Nathanael is told the news by Philip, I'll read for you John chapter 1 verse 45 through 46. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth the son of Joseph. He says, we have found the Messiah. We have found the one that has been promised in the prophets. And what does Nathanael say? He says, Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? To which Philip says, come and see. 
Man, if there were some words that I bet Nathaniel could have taken back, it was those words. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And yet here now we see that it is this very Jesus of Nazareth by whom healing comes. The one who came, lived on this earth, healed many of his own, died on a cross, rose again from the grave, and now has ascended to the right hand of God. And though he is no longer with us, it is still Jesus of Nazareth who is saving people, who is healing people, who is bringing power to broken legs. Yes, something good has come out of Nazareth. It is Jesus Christ. Here's a question for us to consider. What reason did this man, lame from birth, have to think that he could obey this command? Peter has now given this command. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. This man has been lame from birth. As we're going to find out in our next chapter, the man was over 40 years old. For 40 years, all he has known is the inability to walk. Never once have his legs and his feet and his ankles supported his weight. And now he has given this command, rise up and walk. Why would this man not scoff at that? Tell him to get lost. He had no reason to believe it. He had no reason to believe that all of a sudden he was going to walk. And yet what we see miraculously is that faith was brought about in this man's heart so that he was willing to obey Peter's commands. He was willing to obey. Even though he knew full well not a day in his life had he stepped on his feet, not a day in his life had he been able to walk. But upon this command, faith has worked in this man's life so that he is ready and willing to obey Peter's command, even though this isn't what he was asking for. He wasn't asking to be given the ability to walk. All he was asking for was money. But Peter says, here is something far greater. And then we see in verse 7 that not only does Peter give this command, but he gives him authoritative assistance. What do we see in verse 7? After the command is given, rise up and walk. Verse 7 of chapter 3 says, and he, that being Peter, took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Peter not only gives the command, but reaches out his hand to lift this brother, lift him up so that he would stand and walk. The NASB says that he seized him. The idea of grabbing him, making this happen, pulling him up to his feet, giving him the authoritative assistance that he needed. When I hear this word that he seized him and lifted him up, it, it reminds me of, of actually Robert's hugs. I know that sounds weird, but if you are lucky enough like I am to get to know Robert Hudson well enough that he gives you hugs when he sees you, you are in a good place, my friend, because a Robert Hudson hug is a special kind of hug. Robert doesn't open his arms and let you come to him and give him a hug. No, no, no. He forces the hug. You get to about arm's length and no closer, and he grabs you, pulls you in, gives you a hug. It's like being hugged by a bear, you know? You get grabbed and you pull in, he seizes you, pulls me in. And it's a, it's a great feeling to be seized in that way and pulled in for this hug. I think about this when I hear this man as, as Peter seizes him, lifts him to his feet. This man didn't feel abused, violated. He didn't say, hey, easy, easy, simmer down, killer. He jumps up to his feet. 
Peter sees him, seizes him, lifts him up, and pulls him to his feet. Peter acted as he was moved by the Spirit in the authority that Christ had given him in order to raise up this cripple, a man who was in a condition of helplessness and hopelessness, and bring him to his feet. What a picture of how grace works that we have here before us. This is how grace works in our lives. By the Holy Spirit, the command is given, faith is imparted, and the power to stand and walk is granted. All of this by a power not our own, but by a work of the Lord in us. This man, once broken and helpless, is now healed and brought to his feet. And the story just keeps going and keeps getting more and more interesting and exciting as we see point number five, the glorious response in verses eight through 10. I seriously cannot get enough of these kinds of beautiful scenes described in the Bible. In verse eight, as this man is lifted up by Peter, what do we see him do in verse eight? And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Walking wasn't enough for this man. He had been given new legs, and he said, I'm going to see what these puppies can do. I'm going to jump. I'm going to run, and I'm going to shout for joy to God who has done this thing for me. What a glorious scene we have here of this man, who being brought to his feet for the first time in his life, is not content to walk. He is not content to remain calm and to keep things to himself, but goes into the temple leaping for joy and praising God. More importantly, even than what this man does with his legs is what he does with his heart. He glorifies God. He praises the one through whom this miracle has come. He praises God who through Christ has granted him healing, given him his legs, given him the ability to walk for the first time in his life. The other result we see comes in verses 9 through 10. And it's that all the people who had seen this man day after day, year after year, week after week, helplessly begging for alms at the temple gate, now see him and are filled with wonder. And they are amazed at the sight of this man walking and leaping into the temple and praising God. The people were filled with awe. They were filled with wonder and amazement. Because as I said before, there's no way this could have been a hoax. They knew this guy had been sitting there day after day for years. This was not some sort of sleeper cell healing. This man had been planted here 40 years ago, told never walk until this man, Peter and John, come along and heal you and will trick everyone. That was impossible. This man had been here from the been in this shape from the day he was born, and everyone knew this was the man from the gate. This was a cripple from birth who now not only walks, but leaps. They were now primed and ready for the wondrous word that would accompany this wondrous deed. And we'll talk more about that next week as we see after after performing this amazing miracle by the power of Christ Jesus, Peter uses this as his platform, as his moment. Now that the people see the, and are amazed and in awe and wonder at what Christ has done in this man's life, 
Peter is now prepared to preach again and tell them of the good news of Jesus Christ by whom this healing has come. And we'll see that next week. But as we close today, I think that it's still necessary for us to consider and ask the question, as we read through the book of Acts, this is one of many healings that we will see throughout the book of Acts. And I think it's necessary for us to consider what is the purpose of these kinds of healings. Why do we read, why do we see these miraculous healings in the scripture of what value are they to us? The healings that are seen through the ministry of Jesus and continued through the apostles are a demonstration of what we have in Christ Jesus. I would propose that it serves for us, these kinds of healings serve for us as a picture in two different ways. And and there was a man named Dennis, Dennis Johnson who wrote a book called The Message of Acts. And I think he, he gives a helpful example when he says that there are two purposes for these kinds of miracles. They serve both as an x-ray and as a preview. They serve as an, an x-ray in that they serve for us as a physical example of a spiritual reality in salvation. That in salvation, true healing is brought. We, as believers, find ourselves in a state like this man, hopeless helpless, crippled, unable to do anything for ourselves, unable to save ourselves, no hope in the world. And yet when Jesus Christ comes, when the good news of the gospel intercedes, what do we find? Healing comes. Healing comes. Our dead bodies are brought to life. Our broken legs are given strength in Christ Jesus. New life is brought into us by what Christ has done. When we see these kinds of pictures of healing throughout the scripture, we see an x-ray of what salvation does. It changes us. It heals us. It makes us whole in Christ Jesus. That is true of every single believer here today. If you are in here today and you have been saved by Jesus Christ, like this beggar, you have been made whole. We might think, well, I still have back pain. I still have ankle problems. I still have headaches. I sure don't feel whole. But trust me when I say the reality is, spiritually, God has made you whole. But the good news continues. When we think about our headaches, our backaches, our bunions, you name it, all of these things are products of the fall. And the second part of what we see in these kinds of miracles is that they serve for us as a preview or as a signpost pointing to the eschatological, the ultimate truth that by the power of Christ, the curse that entered into this world by Adam is being removed. That there will come a day when there will be no back pain, when there will be no knee pain or headaches, when there will be no bunions, and we will live together in our glorified bodies with Christ as healthy as we can possibly imagine. The curse of Adam is already being undone and one day will be completely removed and wiped away by Christ's finished work on the cross. So we see here in the picture of this man a demonstration, a preview of what is to come for all for the whole world, redemption and recovery. This is the promise that was prophesied all the way back in Isaiah. In Isaiah 35, three through six, the prophet says this, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong and fear not. 
Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf, deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For the waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. We see these waters, these streams already beginning to burst forth into the desert, already beginning to change the reality that we know as we have lived under the curse of Adam. And ultimately, all these things will be made right. Every eye will be opened, every ear will be unstopped, every lame will leap like a deer, and every tongue that is mute will sing for joy in the age to come. This is not only that which has been promised to us, but what is already being revealed in Christ Jesus as we see here in the book of Acts as we read. The Messianic age promised through the Old Testament has now begun and the curse is being removed and one day will be utterly and completely washed away. As we conclude today, there are three application points I want us to consider as we think about the story of this miraculous healing of this beggar, this man who was without hope, sitting by the gate, and Peter and John, in the name of Christ, healed this man. First of all, this man, like many of, many of those around us today, was not asking for what he truly needed. People don't ask for what they truly need, and I think there are various reasons. I think some don't ask because they genuinely don't realize their need. Those who are in their sin, whose eyes are darkened, are so darkened, so hardened of heart that they don't even see the fact that they are crippled, that they are broken, that they're in need of a Savior. It's our duty, it's our responsibility to tell them the gospel, to open their eyes to their need of a Savior, to their need of healing. There are others, perhaps, that don't ask because uh, they are not sure that their deepest needs can be met. Seems unbelievable but do we not serve a God that does the unbelievable? That does the remarkable? That does the impossible? The second thing we ought to consider as we read this story is that just like the Apostle Peter and the authority God had given him reached down and brought this man to his feet, God continues to use his apostles to give us the assistance, the power that we need through the words that he had them write for us. That being the New Testament. It's true that we don't often see miracles like this in our day and age. We don't often see healings like this. In fact, I would argue probably none of us in here has ever seen a healing like this in our lives. In fact, uh, I would say that's a good possibility. But even if we have, we know, and if we're all honest, we know that this kind of thing is not something that we see often in our day and age today. And yet, the power and authority that was given to the apostles to do this kind of work is still at work today. And it is at work through the very word of God. As the apostles wrote, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, what they were doing was by the power of the Spirit, of the Spirit and the authority God had given them, they are in essence reaching down to us and pulling us to our feet, helping us to walk, helping us to run, showing us the way by God's word. For indeed, in God's word, we have everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. If we want to know what it looks like to walk in the way of the Lord, if we don't know what it looks like to worship rightly, we have all the answers we need. The apostles 
by the power of the Holy Spirit, have taken our hand and said, here, read this. This shows us how to walk. And then finally, the last question I have for us today is this, is this question. Do you live and walk and worship as though you were a helpless cripple who'd been given new legs? Do we worship in that way? Do we praise God in this way? Do we think in this way when we worship the Lord who has saved us from our sin? Do we worship as a blind man who was given his sight or as a dead man who was brought to life? Church family, this is the reality of those of us who have been saved by Christ Jesus. That we were broken in our bodies and given new legs to run. That we were blind and now have been given sight to see. Ultimately, church family, we were dead and brought back to life by Jesus Christ. Shouldn't our worship reflect that? Shouldn't our lives reflect that in the world around us? It's like we've been given new legs, but so often we crawl through life on our brand new legs. Church family, we've been given legs and we've been shown the way and given the power. Let us leap, let us run, let us run the race that God has set before us with the legs he has given us. Let us worship God the way this man worshiped, as though we had truly been given new legs, new eyes, new life in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.